Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We are so focused on our physical health right now, but we are a social species, and our emotional and spiritual health is suffering in isolation. There are increased calls to suicide hotlines, and people around the nation and world are struggling. So I've invited my dear friends James Bottoms and Camille Lofton to my show to talk about how we can care for ourselves emotionally and spiritually during these difficult days. Camille brings movement therapy, yoga, and meditation to marginalized and unhoused communities, as well as to those suffering from PTSD and those recovering from physical injury. She works extensively with adults with developmental disabilities, creating movement therapy programs to help cultivate strong interpersonal connections, as well as personal growth, and development among participants. James Bottoms is a licensed marriage and family therapist with extensive background helping individuals and couples navigate the difficulties of relationships and sexuality, as well as helping many individuals and families with depression, anxiety, and addictive compulsive behaviors. During this time when there's so much focus on our physical health, it's important not to forget about our mental health. With all the changes happening as we overcome this pandemic, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, anxious, and stressed. Fear. It's a basic, truly primal instinct. Proof? The way most of us feel right now. And it, too, is contagious. One of Washington State's leading experts on suicide prevention warns of a perfect storm of suicides as coronavirus disrupts lives and people take drastic steps to stop the virus from spreading. There has been. Uh, substantially increase in the number of calls to suicide prevention lifeline. Hand washing, not touching our faces, social distancing. These are all helping to protect us from the coronavirus. But how can we boost our mental health right now? Hi, my name is James Bottoms, and I'm a therapist bringing healing to the world. Hi, my name is Camille Lofton. I am a movement specialist, and I am working to take down capitalism and patriarchy one mindfulness practice at a time. Sorry, sorry not sorry. sorry. Thank you both for being a part of Sorry Not Sorry. I wanted to have you on because people are struggling right now, and I don't think we're talking enough about the mental health ramifications of this collective pain that we're experiencing. So I I really want to start with the question of just what is the psychological toll that this is having on us? And especially what about those on the front line, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders? I think with those people that they actually have training to deal with this. I think that they have a purpose and they're working with what's in front of them. So I think with people, with doctors, what they're in frontline people, how they're going to suffer is it's energetically an immense toll on them to be constantly taking care of other people. And it's this deluge that they can't solve. I think that's going to be very difficult for them. I think the greater crisis for people 
is going to be that the people in the population, the general population, we move through trauma by finding purpose. People don't know the way in which trauma has a long-term, and I mean sometimes decades long-term, effect on things like relationships, intimacy, work, all facets of what we would consider people's normal lives. My fear is that, especially with all of the messaging that there's not a succinct message on how we're supposed to move through this. And my fear is that people aren't going to find purpose. Right. And that people are going to stay at home and focus on what they're missing out and on the fear rather than finding a collective healing conscious around this. And when people are not talking about that, right? When we don't have people in the mainstream media talking about that, I think that it almost has that feeling of, well, what's wrong with me? Clearly, I'm the only one talking or feeling this way because nobody's talking about it. And I think that that could be a really lonely place to be in, too, is that feeling of... I'm the only one that is this anxious about what's happening right now. Or I'm the only one that's depressed about what's happening right now. Because we're just ignoring the psychological toll that this is taking. For sure. And I also think that part of the issue, too, is that in general, we go through our day, we don't invite in anxiety and fear and depression we tend to keep ourselves busy, right? Because that's what capitalism asks us to do is just sort of that churn, churn, churn. And so we right. we tend to collectively as a society push all of those fears and anxieties and worries aside. And so when all of a sudden we have nothing to do but sit yeah. at home and all of that stuff has now come to the surface, we almost have no choice but to look at it. And yeah, that can be incredibly overwhelming. And then when there is no sort of collective response to what that can do to a person and what that can do to a society, for sure, there is going to be ramifications for it. In spiritual work, we call this the shadow work. And, you know, every spiritual tradition speaks to shadow work on some extent or on some level. But collectively, as a Western society, especially here in the States, we haven't looked at this. I mean, this is a complete undoing, if you will. The toll is going to be big. And so it's like, what do we do? What do we do with that? It's interesting because looking at my children, right, who I think we all as parents, at least the way David and I parent, we've kept our kids really, really busy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they have sports. They have, you know, my son has drum lessons and hockey. And, and now to see, well, this is a couple of things, to see him sit and have to sit with potential fear or any anxiety or not feeling good about himself or whatever it is, to see him not have the sports as a way to exert that just to use for a coping mechanism. The fact that all of his coping mechanisms have sort of been taken away. I would imagine a lot of families are feeling this way where we're looking at our kids, especially our active kids, and we're noticing what a drastic change it is because our kids are just not having that coping mechanism of going outside and wrestling around, you know, how boys do that social wrestling and playing the sports and everything. And it's made him actually a lot more self-reflective. I've seen a lot more creativity sparked. 
Yeah, yeah that was, I was going to say that same thing. I think what we're all learning is a couple of things. One, we can't rely on this administration or other media sources to solve this for us, right? So we have to get creative in our own homes, with ourselves individually, within our families, amongst our community. We have to search for that creative response to move through this. Go ahead, James. One thing I'll say is I just from speaking with so many people, friends, clients, everyone's worried about their children. And one thing I found is that actually children are highly resilient. They Mm -hmm. seem to be doing well. When every person I ask, they're like, oh, just like you said, my kids are being more creative, more inventive. There's certainly a bit of boredom, but they're not suffering. Adults are the ones who we've tried to always be productive. We're only valued on what we're doing. It's actually adults that are really suffering by just sitting in this and Mm -hmm. not moving. The other thing that I've noticed about the kids, which I think is pretty special, is they've gotten closer because Mm, they're they're all each other has right now as far as playing. And that's really, really beautiful. I want to get to adults in a second, but I have one question about how best to speak to our children about this time? Is it better to protect their innocence or to be honest about, you know, the fear factor? What do you think? I think the best thing that we can do for our children is, one, to be honest, because to be honest with them about what's going on is it gives them a sense of self-esteem that we believe that they can handle the information. Of course, I don't think you want to overwhelm them with negativity. I think you want to give them the information. I don't think we want to also gaslight our children by saying, oh, everything's going to be okay. We're not worried because they're picking up from us that we are worried. Right. Like everyone's worried. And I think to say, hey, we are worried. These are adult problems that we're going to work on. You're safe. You're taken care of. But there is a lot of fear in the atmosphere. And I think that it is important to be honest with them. And I think the way that we're really going to show them how to work through this is not by telling them how to do it, but by modeling it ourselves. Right. I had an interesting thing happen with Milo, my son, who is almost nine. He was very worried about his papa. Now, papa, that's my dad, is very close to Milo. He picks Milo up from school. He takes him to hockey practice. He takes him to drum lessons. And papa has really, since his retirement, become another caretaker for my son. So naturally, all of a sudden, you stop seeing papa every day. And you hear how this is affecting older people. Because in the beginning, I think a lot of people were saying, kids can't get this. It's older people. So, of course, Milo, being the sensitive child that he is, got very worried about Papa. So we FaceTimed Papa. And I thought what my dad did was very interesting. And it was very effective because it never came up again. He said, I understand, Milo. You know, you have a right to feel scared right now, but here's all the things. Listen to all the things that Papa is doing to keep myself safe. Yeah. 
And hearing that, he said, I'm not going out unless I have to. When I do go out, I'm wearing gloves and a mask. You should see me, Milo. I look like, you know, I look like a hacker. And he made it fun. And he said, and then I spray everything, Milo. You know, I spray everything down. And it was, I think, very helpful for Milo to hear exactly what my dad was doing to be safe. I mean, he misses Papa, but it's not I'm scared for Papa anymore. Right. And I thought that that was such a great way to handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think information is really helpful. And I think one thing with that is we tend to be in community almost like with this, with Milo having to drive to soccer practice or baseball practice with his grandfather. Like those moments have been taken away. Yeah. And so one thing I think that is really helpful during this is like with my kids don't want to be on the phone with their grandparents for more than like five minutes just because they don't have as much to say. And so what I found has been really helpful is like I just put the grandparents on FaceTime or, or whatever platform people are using while we're eating. And so rather than making a concerted effort for conversation, it's just in the background. Yeah. And I think everyone really appreciates everyone I've spoken to about that. Like even we will call their grandmother and put her on FaceTime facing us towards the couch. Yeah. And then we'll press play on the same Netflix. Movie Watch a show together. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's much more relaxed. And I think that it's easier for everyone. We all know that small businesses are struggling right now. A lot of people are trying to figure out ways to help. Well, Shift4 is a payment processing company that supports thousands of restaurant and hotels, some of the hardest hit industries during this crisis. Well, they created an interesting way to help make your dollars to those businesses go further. If you visit www.shift4cares.com, you can purchase a gift card to any of the tens of thousands of small businesses across the country. For every card purchased, Shift 4, and that's number 4, so it's Shift number 4, will give an extra 5% to the businesses. That means a $100 gift card purchase will actually get $105 to the restaurant you've enjoyed so much. Their goal is to raise $200 million for small businesses and contribute $10 million extra in matches. So please go visit shift4cares.com. That's shift, numeral four, cares.com and see how you can help out. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a bit about what you think a psychologically healthy social distancing looks like? We've got to create a sense of trust in some of the things that I've been reading, especially around social distancing, but also how to keep connection is being a service. It still creates a sense of community and a sense of engagement with others without compromising our health and that social distancing. For example, we have a neighbor who doesn't have a washer and dryer. And so instead of sending her to schlep her laundry to a laundromat, 
were doing her laundry for her, or I have friends that will sit on the stoop that's 10 or 12 feet away so that we can still communicate. The FaceTiming aspect, there are an unbelievable amount of online classes that are happening, Zoom meetings. You can do anything from a meditation to church online these days. I think there are a lot of ways to create that community while maintaining that safe social distancing, but it's imperative that you carve some time out of your day to reach out, make that connection. And I think one of the best ways to kind of get out of your own head and out of your own suffering and worry and fear is the part of community of being of service, of reaching out to people that might be suffering more than you are to lend a hand and whatever that means or looks like. And it doesn't even have to involve, you know, a monetary exchange. If you have the money, great, but something as simple as just checking in on your neighbor, whatever it looks like to you. I think that's going to create a lot of relief for people. Sometimes it's the simple things like what Sandra has seen people holding open the doors for others has been pretty amazing to watch. At supermarkets, where stockpiling hasn't exactly been in short supply, Tracy wants to thank the cashiers for putting up with all the hoarders with professionalism and a smile. Anne saw a young man stocking the shelves who carried frozen food packages to a woman's cart at the far end of the aisle. And Jamie, who went for just juice and a few food items. I saw a can of Lysol and was going to grab it because my family likes to have a can in the house in case of sickness. But I saw an older woman who was eyeballing it and was going for it. I let her take it because she needs it more than me. And you don't have to go far to go out of your way. Acts of kindness can be as close as your own neighborhood. I also think there is something about that that gets us back to living a life of service, you know, which if we're going to look at the bright side of any of this, I think that that has to be a big part of the bright side is that we need to be reminded what it means to be a compassionate part of a community, something that's bigger than ourselves. And I think a lot about right now how important that especially is for people who are single, who maybe don't have anyone with them right now, while they're being socially distant. And that, to me, must feel so lonely. And loneliness seems like a real problem right now. So how can the many people who are really truly alone right now, stay connected to the things and the people that matter. What we're finding is that we are already a socially isolated population. So what's happening is I think that social distancing has really exacerbated social isolation. And what we're finding out is it turns out outside of going to work or going to the coffee shop, there are a lot of people that actually don't connect with people Mm -hmm. in their normal day-to-day life. And there's this idea, it's very American that we're supposed to do everything by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's really taken away the communal aspect of how we are, we're actually pack mammals. We do better in groups. We Notice when we go to a wedding and a person sitting by themselves or a bar, it's literally comes up in us that there's something that's dangerous about that because that person, why are they not with other people? Mm. And I think that we've been taught to dampen connecting with people. And I think right now people are going to have to be creative 
And we're not used to doing that. We're used to looking down at our phones and just seeing what's going on. And we're getting overwhelmed with negativity by what's going on. Everybody feels lonely from time to time. When we have no one to sit next to at lunch, when we move to a new city, or when nobody has time for us at the weekend. But over the last few decades, this occasional feeling has become chronic for millions. In the UK, 60% of 18 to 34-year-olds say they often feel lonely. In the US, 46% of the entire population feel lonely regularly. We are living in the most connected time in human history. And yet, an unprecedented number of us feel isolated. Some of the stuff that we've done is there are people like I know Camille's leading meditation groups and yoga groups and Pilates online. And I know that now let Camille speak to this because I know that there are so many people that are out there who normally you can't connect with who are making themselves completely available. And so, like, right. Camille, did you want to talk with, about that idea? Oh, just sort of piggybacking on this idea of community right now. We had a fortunate experience or opportunity rather to sit in that global peace meditation on Saturday evening. And we jumped in with Achille Beckwith and he spoke. And I thought this was just so timely and, and lovely and I think bears repeating, but he spoke to the agape people's belief that community literally equals immunity, right? And if we allow ourselves to come together, if we find or look for similarities, if we mm. are of service to other, if we can come to one another's aid, finding transparency and vulnerability with one another, creating that connection, this is where the healing is, right? It's in that separation. And let's be real. That's what you know, capitalism and patriarchy wants from us is that separation. This is where dis-ease is created. So that disease of heart and disease of spirit. And so I think one of the silver linings of this, and I spoke to this a moment ago, but is the unbelievable amount of services that are being provided online. Yeah. You have access to anything. I mean, we did a beautiful cacao ceremony hosted by a Mayan curandera, and there were probably... 30 people from around the world. And what an opportunity, right? I've been able to practice with yoga teachers who I've admired for years, like yoga masters, and I get to pop into a class. Like, what a dream. And I think technology definitely has its woes and has created so much separation. And almost how ironic is it that in our in the midst of some of the most extreme separation we could imagine, it's also the thing that's might very well bring us closer together and even save some of us, especially those of us that are living alone right now. It'll take a little bit of effort to find something to do and to make that connection. But to be honest, not a ton. It's just there. You know, when I was watching Italy go through this before we went through this, I was so taken by the difference in mentality of, you know, like, they're out on their balconies on day one, singing and dancing, and you felt this real human spirit, right? This spirit that cannot be, you know, stepped on, that overcomes everything. You know, we had that few weeks to really reflect on, I wonder when we get to that point in this country, is it going to be like that? And I think to an extent, we've done a really good job at coming together, especially 
considering the fact that we've been so divided, it feels like, for so long. I do think that it is pretty astounding the things that I've seen in the United States as far as service, because that's not who we've been for a really long time. We've really, in my opinion, have been all about I, me, mine. And there's not a lot of books in the bookstore about being a good member of society or a community, but there's a lot on leadership and how to be a good leader. So I just think to be able to experience this on a global scale, especially right now with, where there's so much xenophobia going around in our country, has been really eye-opening and really beneficial for people to be reminded of what, you know, being a human being actually means. Can you talk to us a little bit about really the difference between spiritual health and emotional health? Yeah, absolutely. I think that spiritual health, spirituality tends to be what we're doing is we're looking for something to connect outside of us, even if it is the God within us connecting with, you know, the God within me connecting with the God within you. And I think emotional health is related to the idea of how we regulate ourselves during upset. And so spiritual health, and to speak with that, I to even piggyback on what you had just said, I love this idea by Rumi. I'm probably going to misquote it, but cracks are where the light of God comes in. Mm -hmm. And that right now what's happening in our population and each person, is there just a lot of cracks in how we normally walk through the world? And we're seeing that maybe actually with what you're saying that we do need to be broken. Maybe the direction that we're going, if we keep going in this direction, it's untenable. And mm. so I think with emotional regulation, the spiritual part is so that we can connect with each other. And I think the emotional part is we really need to take care of ourselves. I know for me, one of the big things has been meditation, being slower, being gentle with myself. I think that a lot of people, when we get fearful, it's a high arousal state. So fear tends to cause anxiety and we get this extra energy and we want to do something with it. And what that's going to show up like, whether you're by yourself or especially if you're with couples, with your families, is you're going to start bickering. And you're going to start noticing the negative things. And I think that for emotional health, one of the things we really have to do is focus on what is positive. Because I think everyone is getting overwhelmed. Like right now, we're constantly looking up what's the latest update on COVID-19. What's happening from the leadership of the country? How is everyone responding? And I think that everyone's staying in a high arousal state and you have to know the latest information. And I actually don't think that's helpful. I think if people want to stay emotionally regulated right now, use your phone to connect to other humans. Don't try to necessarily get more information. Of course, you have to stay educated. But I think people are emotionally torturing themselves by updating the news every 15 or 20 minutes to see if something's happened. I think it's to stay educated and emotionally level. Maybe check in the morning, give yourself five or 10 minutes. Check in the evening, give yourself five or 10 minutes. And don't spend every conversation that you're talking with people 
talking around COVID. Talk right. about what are we going to do as we're coming out of this. But you realize it's a hard thing to do right now, right? Because many people are in that habit already, right? They're in that habit before something as terrifying as COVID. Yeah. Many people have this sort of addiction to the refresh button. I'm certainly guilty of it at times. And it's almost like, you know, like, why are people still tuning in to Trump's press conferences? And I believe that because it's kind of a form of like reality TV entertainment. So people were in that routine already. To try to break that now when there is new news coming out, I understand like the importance of it, but it feels like the reality of like that's a big habit to break right now given the circumstances. I think there are things you can do so that you don't set yourself up for failure. I always remind my yoga students, and I don't think we necessarily follow this timeline, but Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist, Zen master who suggests we look at the news every six months. Again, I don't believe that's viable for the society we live in, but it's a gentle reminder that we don't have to check or hit the refresh button, like you said. And if you're someone that is hitting the refresh button, you know, 10, 20 times an hour, are you able to do it only five times an hour? You know what I mean? Like set realistic, uh, realistic exactly yeah. goals so that you're not setting yourself up for failure. And I think always being gentle with yourself in the process is going to be key. And I think, if I may, going back to spiritual health during this time is none of this has to be rigid or obligatory, that outside of a wholesome discipline, you always want to try and remain gentle with yourself, especially in these times. And I think when it comes to that intake of news and information, yeah, try to set those limits for yourself. But also, it's okay if you have a day where you fall apart and you're just in bed looking at the news. Like this, all of it is okay and all of it is welcome here. This is the other thing that I think about and stress about. The families and those who are hospitalized. Mm. Normally, this is when we lean on one another, but these families are not even allowed to visit the sick in the hospital. And many of these people are going to the hospital and they may not see their families ever again. They may die alone. He did get much worse uh, very quickly to the point of, you know, it being pretty clear that Steve wasn't going to survive this. I knew what my uncle's wishes were. So we needed to take him off the, off the ventilator. And it's a very hard decision. It's even harder when you can't be near your loved one towards the end where you can't say goodbye. You may on the phone, but if they're on a ventilator sedated and you can't be there, there's no saying goodbye. And that's probably one of the hardest things is it's a lonely, it's a lonely death for somebody. How do families get closure? We're not allowed to have funerals right now or sit Shiva or, or do any of those things that we normally do around death to find some peace or closure. So what recommendations would you have for these people going through this that have a loved one that's in the hospital or that, you know, someone has, has passed away and they can't celebrate that life? First off, with what you're speaking of, you're totally right in that this is a really difficult time and there are really difficult things going on. And I don't think that there is necessarily a right answer to that. And so I don't want to come across like, oh, intellectually, you should do this or that, because 
there are just difficult things going on. And I do think that um, in what I'm about to say is going to be a little controversial, I'm sure. But in America, we're a very entitled society of very entitled people. And we are used to always getting what we want when we want it. And that includes with the news. So for instance, and we lived in a different country, we wouldn't have access to news the way we have it. I think for those people that are going through that, the biggest thing I could say is my heart goes out to them because we've heard of a lot about that. And honestly, even thinking about it right now brings up emotion in me for those people's struggle. I think what we need to do is to reach out. If you know people that are going through that, I think it's the job of their support community to reach out to them. Yeah. I think that's one place where certain civic groups, church, things like that tend to be very good at having people coalesce around these people mm -hmm. because I don't know that there's an answer for someone not being able to get to their parent in the hospital. I, I think that's really terrible. I think that it's the responsibility of our society, of our groups to actually connect with those people to support them. So maybe I know that there was, speaking of Shiva, that there was a virtual Shiva done for someone. And I think those people, what they could really use is knowing that people are thinking about them and they're there to support them. Yeah. I mean, just sort of speaking to that as well. I mean, we recently had a friend whose father passed away, not from COVID, but during this, and she's in Boston and he's in Texas and she can't get to him. And same thing. It was, okay, what do we do in this moment? Let's reach out, check in on her every day. Let's send a care package and flowers. And just, again, it's coming back to that connection and community. It is going to be paramount to helping us navigate this because ultimately, yes, we'll get through this because we have to, but we're going to come out of this being a lot different with a lot of grief and a lot of pain and a lot of loss and a lot of sorrow. And how you move through that is with others. I'm wondering if there's any support groups that have been formed for this very thing. I feel like we need to do better at giving people going through very specific problems during the COVID-19 crisis, giving everyone some sort of support group. If you're, you know, if you're on the front lines, there should be a support group. If you've lost a loved one and you were not able to say goodbye, and it just feels because this is such uncharted territory that we need to create a safe space for people. Mm, absolutely. I know that there are, I have colleagues in different aspects of healing that are already doing that. I do think that as you're saying that, for the people that are listening and hearing this podcast, and especially with people who have some sort of power, even if it's just in their own community, the impetus is on us to create mm. that. Mm -hmm. Because I think that what's really going to help is, so for instance, I know there's a spiritual healer who sends out I get a weekly message from her about how she's doing something where it's just connecting around COVID and the people that are struggling and that she's curating that for who can enter it based on where people are at with their suffering. But I do think it is a reset where we as a community, we tend to be trained to dismiss the weak. 
Yeah. So, for instance, we're trained that when we see a person who's unhoused on the street to not make eye contact with them. And I think that's a part of our leadership right now. I think our leadership that's creating this divisive rhetoric rather than saying, how can we all come together? Like, I think that hospitals should definitely be creating support groups around this. I think it's hard, though. The people that should be creating it are probably completely overwhelmed. And so I think it's going to have to come from a third party. Well, and I also think, too, especially here in the West, I mean, we look at death one of two ways, which is either to fear it or completely ignore it. And so when it's happening on such a collective, far-reaching scale, it's going to require, again, to use the word creative, but creative responses. And um, like James mentioned, it is on us to reach out to our people in our community. And again, I think wherever we can find some sort of positivity in all of this, maybe what this will now require us to do is look at death differently as a culture. How do we approach people who are grieving? We tend to ostracize them or think that there should be some sort of stamp on their grief and it's over and there's closure and they've moved on. Grief is slippery. It's You could be moving along just fine and then all of a sudden it takes you down at the knees. And so I think collectively as a culture here in the West, we need to learn to embrace those that are grieving. We need to learn to sit at the foot of grief and sadness without feeling the need to change it, you know, be be able to really sit with it. And I think that's going to be some of our work during all of this because we can't run from it. I mean, it is staring us in the face. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. I think that when people are reaching out to go back to the idea of refreshing, I think what people are actually looking for is connectivity. One of the points of recovery in one of the 12-step groups is that you need to reach out to three people every single day with the idea that people who are going through recovery from an addiction tend to be going through isolation. And so what you're doing is you're trying to reset them so that they can start creating a support structure in their life. Right now, what people can really start doing is if you really want to help people, the best thing you can do is not hit refresh. The best thing you can do is reach out to people. That's how we're going to feel We do better in groups. We do better when we feel supported. And I love this idea, this German writer, Thomas Mann, that it's something like a great truth, it and its opposite are true, which means that during this, the truth is that we definitely have to take care of ourselves so that we can help other people. But the opposite of that is also true, which is that we have to help other people so that we can take care of ourselves. I think that's really important right now is if you want to create change, someone said like, go home, hug your wife and tell your children that you love them. Right. I think you both touched on this, but I just want you to expand on this idea of suffering from the perspective of 
mental health and from the perspective of spiritual health? Yeah, I'm happy to take on, especially on the spiritual component. Earlier in our conversation, I briefly mentioned this idea of shadow work. I think it's important to remember that there are just going to be days where pulling it together is inaccessible, right? And then part of what we are experiencing here is referred to as that shadow work, which is the psychological and, and spiritual practice of exploring that dark side or the shadowy parts of our nature, right? We all possess a place within us that contains shame, impulses, parts that are deemed unacceptable or unworthy. And, you know, in shamanic traditions, this is sort of the meat of the spiritual practice, right? This is the, the hard stuff. These are the primal fears. And I think we've found ourselves smack dab in the middle of this collective shadow dive, whether or not we want to be here. And mm -hmm. everything is coming to the surface on a global scale. But it's all necessary, right? And if you look across, really, all shadow work shows up in, in all spiritual traditions, right? It is Mara trying to persuade Siddhartha under the Bodhi tree to leave his quest for enlightenment. It is the temptation of Christ. So sitting with your fear and your anxiety and your worry is just part of this. And I think what we want to learn to do is recognize it, locate that fear, that anxiety physically in your body, right? For most of us, we can feel our fear. And then I would invite us to remember to breathe into those parts of our bodies that are holding that fear and anxiety, right? For me, it's my chest. It always gets really tight. And so putting a hand to my heart and simply breathing into my chest it reminds me that when I'm, I'm okay, right? I'm, I'm alive, I'm here. But it also physiologically engages that parasympathetic nervous system. It reminds my body that I'm physically okay, that I'm not in imminent danger. And then invite those fears in, talk to them, look at them, dance with them. This is an opportunity to do just that. We have nothing else to do. And then when you're ready, maybe they pass. And I think that this is something you will find yourself having to do again and again and again and again. And you just hold all of it. All of it is welcome. The angst, the suffering, the fear, the worry, the connection, the solidarity, all of it. And be gentle and be gentle with yourself. And we don't have to understand this purpose necessarily, right? But perhaps we can learn to trust or have faith that there is purpose to this even if we don't understand what it is. Hard task. <laughs> yeah, really hard. But are there things that you think people should absolutely not be doing during this time? That's hard to say, because um, I don't want to speak to anyone who's not, I don't know what's going on with them. I do think there are things that you can help to contain a lot of this. I mean, there's the idea of like, you know, feed the right wolf, which is like whatever energy you're feeding is going to expand in your mind. And so I think some of the things that people are not going to be helpful, I, I think that, I'll, let me say what, what's probably going to be more positive. I think that you should try to really eat as healthy as possible given the circumstances. I think just eating sugar is going to, granola and, you know, potato chips is going to not be great for your brain chemistry. I think that mm. making sure that you move around and that you get exercise. I mm. think that sometimes the right thing for us is to check out. Sometimes the right thing for us is to really try to expand our brains. So I think that this is a time where if, you know, uh, I think a lot of co people that are parenting and doing this at home are 
like having to learn about quadratic equations from Khan Academy again. But I think that you can try to really work on expanding your brain, expanding your social network, making sure you get exercise, make sure that you get the right amount of sleep, stay hydrated, connect with the people that you love. My guess is some of the talk has been going around is that what people are talking about is that addiction is skyrocketing right now. There's a lot of issues with suicidality for people being overwhelmed. And I think under those is always social isolation, like Gabor Mate speaks about that. Whenever under those things are always pain, but it's always exacerbated by isolation. Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex, everything a rat about town could want. And they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. And so I think the thing that people do not want to do is to just sit at home and think. Sit at home and read the internet. I think that is going to really tilt people's emotional balance in the wrong direction. Mm. And finally, I know it's hard to project at this point because we're so fresh in it, but what lessons do you think we can take forward with us after this crisis is over and into the future to make the world a better place? I think that's a beautiful question. I I think if we take a moment and look over the trajectory of our own individual lives, my guess is we've all weathered some storms, some some dark nights. And I think we can use those as a point of reference. And I I mentioned this because I think it's important we recognize and remember our strength and our resiliency, right? Our ability and tendency to rise above adversity. And I think if we even take a broader lens, if we look across the whole of humanity from an evolutionary standpoint, we are a wildly resilient species. I think about what our ancestors had to experience and endure. So we not only have evolution on our side, but we have our ancestors at our back supporting us. And I find comfort in that. And I think it's important we remember that. And that really across spiritual practices from Christian mysticism to Indian yogis, we, we can all speak to that deep intrinsic epigenetic ability to not only endure difficult times, but to rise above them. And I think if, 
I think this is providing an opportunity for us to remember that collectively and individually. And that's a, a beautiful gift. What an opportunity to rise up. For me, that one of the silver linings in all of this. I want to say this without discounting all of the very real suffering that mm -hmm. people are going through, because mm -hmm. there are people who are, you know, are not able to pay their rent. People who are, I mean, I think a large proportion of our country lives on the edge of survival yeah. all the yeah. time. And so taking that into account, I think what we can take away from this is people eating at home, people nourishing each other. Like I know for me, I haven't cooked this much hmm. at yeah. home yeah, really forever. And I'm, I'm actually really loving the fact of being able to nourish the people in my lives. I love the idea of maybe trails are more important than we used to view them. Maybe the earth is more important. Maybe connection, if we can come out of this and be more kind to the other people around us. I notice noise pollution is like mm -hmm. at a minimum, you know? Yeah. People are giving, I mean, through social distancing, I mean, they're giving people more space. But I also think People are just being a little more kind and a little more generous. And I'm noticing that at the grocery stores, people are actually, I noticed when this started, there were a lot of fights over toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. And now it's like people seem to be taking that into account. And I would love if we could come out of this being a kinder, more supportive society, because I really feel like we need this. I just remember Stephen Hawking writing about aggression, saying that it was an evolutionary holdover that isn't working for us anymore because of how we live. And I would love if this could be one of those tipping points where we could say, do we really need to have to buy stuff all the time? Do we really need to be so productive so that we can just consume? Can we actually find more enjoyment just by sitting with the person across from sitting with our family. So, I mean, let me ask you this. Where do you find hope in these uncertain times? I think right now, hope is really important. And I think one of the ways we want to cultivate that is underneath resilience tends to be laughter and joy. And I think one of the things we really want to focus on is amidst this deluge of negative information or, or intense information, I think it would be, it's really great to make sure that we're still smiling. If it's rather than, you know, put something on Netflix that allows you to smile, like something that allows you to uh, find laughter, to find some joy, to find happiness. To um, I know there's the uh, John Krasinski show about trying to find the bright spots amidst all of this, because I think that's really important. Like when they say laughter is the best medicine, I think right now that is just a really salient point for everyone. Well, thank you both so much for your mm. insight and guidance. I certainly appreciate it. And I know my listeners will too. Reach out, connect, be kind to yourself. We'll leave you today with this very special spoken word from Prince EA. Are you scared yet? They say this thing, it kills your immune system, attacks your lungs, makes it hard to breathe, and it's spreading. It's spreading like wildfire, 
uh, causing havoc. Your friends and family are gonna get it if they don't already have it. It's tragic, I tell you, madness. Scientists say old people get it worse, but most get it eventually. They say this is new, but no, no, no. This has been around for centuries. Look at history, it's just a different name, a different strain. And now there's no way to contain it. It affects the rich, poor, young, old, the unknown, the famous. It's dangerous. Everyone's on edge, locked inside of their homes nervously. Borders are closed. Countries declare a state of emergencies. Grocery stores are empty. Nobody's praying in church. The world has gone to crap. No wonder toilet paper sold out first. The stock market crashed. Thousands laid off work. Hand sanitizer is going for a million dollars a squirt. You better not sneeze because no one's going to say God bless you. They might even arrest you. I don't mean to stress you, but washing your hands obsessively in the restroom will not protect you. Friends, I'm not talking about coronavirus. Now this is a virus even more deadly. The F virus. You've seen it. It spreads every minute like an epidemic. It lives on surfaces. Most commonly remote controls, TV screens, cellular phones. It makes you desperate. Doctors say every time you scroll down your feed, you get reinfected. It invades the brain. And when it mutates, it turns into hatred and blame. China did it. No, no, Italy did. No, no, Iran. No, Spain. Oh, I didn't make it clear. The F virus, ladies and gentlemen, is fear. But don't be afraid. Despite what you hear or see on your TV, there is good news during this tragedy. To fight loneliness, people are performing concerts on their balconies. The UAE sent aid to Iran. Japan donated supplies to China for free. Written on them was a poem that said, We are waves from the same sea. Listen to me. Like every tragedy, we can let this destroy us, or we can use it to our benefit and repair relationships with our sisters and brothers. Wipe away silly grudges, because when it's all said and done, all we ever really had in this world was each other. So yes, let's flatten the curve and expand our hearts. Let's social distance, boost our immune systems, be mindful of where we put our hands, but also where we put our attention. Be alert, not fearful, because the F virus is a pandemic easily transmitted. If you do contract it or exhibit symptoms, we recommend immediately dialing the hotline of a level-headed friend. If you are exposed through your TV, change the dang station. Decontaminate yourself through dance, laughter, and meditation. 2020 has been morbid. From Kobe to COVID, may we use these tragic moments to finally wake up to what's important. Right now, tell someone that you care for them. Yes, right now, tell them that you cherish them. If they are not in the same room, ring them up and tell them you will always be there for them. Because together is how we will rise above. The only vaccine for this F virus and every other virus is love. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 